name is Hillary, and I have a couple readings here today. The first one is from Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 17. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at the time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And the second reading is from Lamentations three nineteen through 26. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Thanks, Hillary. Well, good morning. If, I'm, if we haven't met, I'm Rob, and it's so good to see you here on this blustery day. We are in this series on carols, Christmas carols, and it's the start of Advent. Advent, remember, is the beginning of the Christian year. If we were to put seasons in place, we've obviously got our seasons of spring, summer, fall, and winter, but long time ago, the Christians that were following Jesus thought it right to do the rhythms of the world aligned with the rhythms that we see God working in. And so they thought Advent would be the place to start because it's the period of anticipation, both the joyful one and then the longing one of waiting for the Savior to be born, Christ with us. So the year of Christ starts with waiting. And so today we look at the song, O Holy Night. It was actually written in the mid-1800s. The poet who wrote it was Placide Capote. Did you see that? Yeah. Now, Capote was known around town as a bit of a wild man. Actually, his childhood friend accidentally shot him in the hand, causing that hand to be amputated. And so uh, he went to school for literature, but then ended up selling liquor, wine, and spirits throughout the area instead. Now, although Capote didn't attend church, he acted like he was very far from God and was not known around town as a Christian. The local Catholic priest knew that he loved literature. So one day, the local priest asked Capote if he would write a poem to go along with the story of the birth of Christ as told in the second chapter of Luke. As Capote was thinking about this, he was on his way from their little town to Paris um, by stagecoach and he started picturing himself at the nativity and what he might experience. And in just a couple hours, he actually wrote the entire poem. And he was so delighted with his work that he asked one of his friends, a cantankerous ballet and opera composer named Adolphe Adam, to put the poem to music. Now, mind you, Adam, Mr. Adam didn't attend church, didn't act like a Christian or like he was close to God, and was not known around his town as a Christian but wrote the music for this song, originally in French, known as the Cantique de Noël. It was performed just three weeks after this ask on Christmas Eve. 
on the first midnight mass. And it was an instant success. It spread throughout the Church of France until a few years later when the church leaders discovered who wrote it and who did the music. And they were like, we have to shut this down. This person is far from God. And the music sounds like it's from a ballet or a bar. We can't have this. But it was too late. Even with the church banning it for a couple decades, the French people never stopped singing it. In fact, 50 years later, a professor and a chemist named Reginald Fendison did what many people at the time thought impossible. He hooked up a microphone to his makeshift generator, and for the first time in history, a human voice was played over airwaves. Imagine the shock to the people that had radio technology of the time, the military, the newspaper, and the shipping industry, as they heard this crackling voice come through this radio, and it was the strong, clear words that inspired that hymn 50 years before. A reading of Luke 2, and in their awe of that, some of the, the military, actually some of the Navy, thought they were hearing the voice of an angel. Then the professor picked up his violin and played Oh Holy Night, the first song ever airing on the radio. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them at the inn. Now there were shepherds nearby living out in a field, keeping guard over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a vast, heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. When the angels left them and went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has taken place, that the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph and found the baby lying in a manger. When they saw him, they related what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds did. But Mary treasured up all these words, pondering in her heart what they might mean. So the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything was just as they had been told.
you, Caleb. That was beautiful. And I don't know about you, but the words of Scripture seemed more beautiful, not just because of his British accent, but because I imagined the words coming over the radio for the first time. I know that radio is like this ancient thing that if you're under 50, you're like, uh, not so technologically advanced. But for those of you that you know, were born after 8-tracks, like, there was this time in the world where the radio was something that no one could imagine, like sound traveling across distances. And so we have this, we have this song that, that has broken through technologies. We have a song that's broken through the barriers of church and politics. And then, what do we do with it? I know that uh, I can't get that, um, that guy from American Idol who sang this song, right? That first year? Are anybody, like, anybody with me? Am I totally lost? Um, well, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, there was someone who I thought just totally, completely ruined the song, and so for a number of years, a number of years that I couldn't sing the song. But the phrase I want to look at today uh, from the song and then a couple of the scriptures uh, is this phrase, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. I want to look at a couple of the scriptures, and I think if we look at this, these verses, and we look at these scriptures, not only do I think that will transform the way we view the song, but I actually think it could change the way that we live our lives. So would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would be present in... uh, God, this, this song in these words that you inspired so long ago and that my words would not be my own but would be from you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to respond. Amen. First thing I notice in this is this dichotomy of this sin and error pining and then there's this appearance. There's this weary world and then there's rejoicing. There's like the darkness of the night and then this glorious morning. And pining, I looked up, it's actually like this mental and physical decline or atrophy. And I think that works in the individual sense. But imagine pining in this communal sense. I sense this moral and social decline. There's this wasting away. When you think about weary world, does that fit? Like when you think about the number of people around you that are anxious or confused or you watch the news or you listen to it and you're anxious and confused or you're just overwhelmed with the amount of things going on in the world, you don't have much trust in the government, you don't have much trust in the economy, you don't even actually have much trust in our relationships in the world. But it's not just that big stuff out there. I think on a personal level, especially during the holidays, we have this sense of unspoken expectations. And then we've got our own family dysfunction and the reality that people we care about are sick or missing this holiday. And that can cause anxiety in even the most healthy people. 
And we can forget because of our own stuff that the world is weary. I think because humanity has been in this cycle of air and pining for a long time. So I've been reflecting on this phrase all week. This sin and air pining and then this moment when Christ appears. And I think we face corruption and oppression and death every single day. And if, if you're not watching the news or you're not listening to it, if you're off the internet, if you're in a cave or a black hole without cell phone reception, then I think you might miss hearing those things every single day, but then you're still left with your own oppression and your own corruption and your own evil. I, I start to feel like my soul is worth less. Anybody? No, I'm the only one. All right. It's all right. I can be okay. Until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Considered what that means. The soul to feel its worth. It takes me all the way back to the beginning. When God created this world that was full of goodness and life and put humans at the pinnacle of his creation, he made humans in his image to reflect his image. He gave the first man and the woman a place to live, a garden of delight in perfect harmony. In fact, they partnered with God to bring goodness and life in the world and they enjoyed such honest communication between each other and God that some would call it embarrassing except that there was no shame yet so they didn't know what embarrassment was. And yet God was still God, he was still the creator, and they were still creation, so there were boundaries in that relationship. And because God doesn't force his love on anyone, he doesn't demand their allegiance, there had to be something to symbolize in the center of kind of where they lived, a choice to either choose God or reject God. And it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, I think when Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they were in essence saying, I want to be God, and I want to determine what is good and what is evil. Did you consider that with me? That desire to be God and to determine what is good and what is evil? Maybe you think I'm just taking it a little too far, but think about what their firstborn son Cain did. If you know the story, Cain's little brother brought this great offering that God accepted. It was the first and the best. Cain brought an offering, and for some reason, God didn't accept it. And so Cain thought it was good, or not evil, to kill his brother. And that actually being his brother's protector was bad, or in essence, evil. And on and on the stories go, generation after generation of sin and error pining on until the book of Genesis describes it as the Lord seeing how great in Genesis 6-5 and wicked, how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. God could have started over but took one family and some animals and put them in a boat and renewed the earth and said he would never do that again except the next big story is humanity building a tower in a place called Babel, which in Hebrew is Babylon, because these people come together to elevate themselves to the place of God so that they can, can you figure it out, determine what is good and what is evil. And God scatters them. 
In the next book, I won't go through every book, but in the next book of the Bible, in Exodus, there's a king of Egypt who feels threatened by the Hebrew immigrants who have been there for 400 years, long enough to be citizens. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying they're long enough to be citizens. And so he thinks it's good to kill the infants, enslave the adults, and demand their allegiance to the king's definitions of good and evil. No, all the time you will work. You will not go worship your God. Sounds like another Babel, doesn't it? Am I poking yet? Because God frees them from that place because his dream is that a people would become this community of promise that are free to worship God. Not free to do whatever they want, but free to worship God and discover who God is and let other people discover who God is by blessing them or, in essence, doing what God thinks is good. What do you think it would feel like to be in a community of people where you are free to worship God and follow what it means that what his definition of good is? Would that feel constricting? Or would that feel like life? In other words, it's letting God be God and allowing him to determine what is good and what is evil. So, what does that have to do with O Holy Night? Well, on the night of Christ's birth, the writer of Luke includes um, some peculiar characters. The first is uh, when he says that there's, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. So many scholars would claim that Augustus was the greatest of the kings or the rulers of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is actually at its pinnacle moment because Augustus, who used to be called Octavian, used power, oppression, and war to unify the Roman Empire after 20 years of civil war. They said that's good. He also is the one who institutes Pax Romana or the Roman peace. And that was good as long as you didn't mess with the peace of Rome because then you'd be killed. They're the ones who perfected crucifixion. In essence, saying, that's good. Are you catching what I'm putting down? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Like, it's just another version of Babylon. An emperor, Augustus, which, by the way, means revered one, which he was given when he became the sole ruler of the empire, is kind of considering himself to be God and demanding allegiance to his definitions of good and evil. So then we have in the story, Joseph, who went up from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And if you're picking up, wow, the house and line of David sounds a lot like the reading that Hillary read from Jeremiah, you'd be right. Because Luke is a smart cat, and he wants us to catch that there's this king that the world thinks is an emperor and is so amazing and good, except he's demanded This is what's good, and this is what's evil. And then there's this other king that actually Israel would say was the greatest human king of all time, David, who actually says, the scriptures say that he's a man or a human after God's own heart. And it's no coincidence that every king of Israel and Judah is compared to King David. You'll hear over and over in the book of Kings and in the book of Chronicles that There's this king that comes to the throne, and he did what was right in the eyes of God, like his father David. 
didn't matter how much below he was. Or, unlike his father David, he did not do what was right in the eyes of God. See, it's like the writers of the scripture are saying, there are these two evaluations that you can judge a ruler by or a leader by. Do they demand their way, allegiance to their definitions of right and wrong, or do they follow God's definitions? Because David was not perfect. He worshiped God, he repented when he rebelled against God, and he led the people to follow God's definitions of what is good and what is evil. And when the kingdom of Israel splits in two, all of Israel's kings, every single one of them, rebel against God, they make their own definitions of what is good and what is evil, and God sends them into exile. Why? I think if we connect these stories, it's because the promised land had actually become Babylon. Not literally, but spiritually, a place where they were creating their own definitions of good and evil. Because Babylon really is this symbol, this icon of humanity's rebellion against God, demanding for themselves to be God and determining what is good and what is evil. And every Every version of Babel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, Greece, you could throw in there, maybe us, a place that rebels against God and demands allegiance to their own definitions of good and evil. That's where Jeremiah, who writes Lamentations and Jeremiah, is coming from. The people are in exile. They're not picking up that it's not just because their kings were awful. It's because their own hearts were turned away from God. And they're weary. And they're waiting. And you can look in the world. I look in the world and I sometimes get weary too. And I think there's some responses to that. We can obviously see that there are responses to that in history and in culture. There are people who decide to go up and fight the way the world fights. There's always another version of Rome or Babylon. The people who are going to say, this is how we do it. But then there are those who just surrender to the culture. Either because they've adopted it, kind of without thinking, or because they're so silent you have no idea where they're at. And we can live in that place for a long time. Maybe Jeremiah at times was in that place, but your heart just grows weary in that place. Or you do see people through the scriptures, and I think today, who subvert that culture, who don't openly rebel against it, but subtly rebel against it. You see that with Esther going to the king and trying to save her people. You see that with Daniel rising up in the Babylonian courts, becoming this leader, becoming second in command or third in command, you see him subvert the culture and actually turn an emperor's heart to say, Daniel's God is the true God. And so you have in this time of exile, which the people are in when Luke is being written, you have these people who are waiting for a deliverer, a savior, one who will conquer Rome, who will set up God's people as that place. And there were shepherds in a field one night. They're doing what everyone else is doing, waiting for that Savior. And the angels declare to all the people that holy night, 
there's good news of great joy for a savior is born to you. In the town of David, connecting to that king who did not create his own definitions of what is good and what is evil, and when he did, he repented, but followed God and led the people to follow God. It was the only time actually in the kingdom where God gave the people rest and gave the land rest and experienced peace, where Jerusalem actually was a city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. So, connects it to the town of David. A savior has been born, one who will deliver us. He is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the king or the Lord. And this message, and you will, this will be the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in a manger. See, this king is not going to do it the way that every other kingdom has done it. It's going to come helpless to teenagers, likely. And this message is going to be first delivered to shepherds. Now, I know, I know that we love our shepherds, especially the ones that we'll see in a couple weeks in the kids' Christmas program. Like, there's, I'm just, spoiler alert, there's this song called Stinky Smelly Sheep that some people are like, but I love sheep, they're not smelly. Maybe, maybe sheep aren't. But shepherds, it could be the stinky, smelly shepherds. Because in Jesus' day, the shepherds of the day were such scoundrels and liars that, that court officials and judges would not permit their testimony in court. No one could trust a shepherd. Hold on to your wallets when the shepherds came in. That's the people that God first gives this proclamation to. Okay, so let's try and put all these pieces together. So we've got this godly king, David, who's a man after God's own heart or human after God's own heart, who tries to help the people follow what is good and what is evil in God's sight. We have this godless tyrant king, Augustus, who unknowingly prepares a way of peace for the prince of peace. And then we have these glorious angels, this heavenly army, who delivers a message to a group of scoundrels and liars known, known as shepherds. And then you think of the song, because you're smart, you can go there with me. You think of the song. We've got a bold but nameless Catholic priest who sees someone who loves literature, who has a gift, who, who willingly offers it to the church, who, by the way, is a one-handed poet and liquor salesman, who has the music done by a bankrupt ballet and opera composer who grew up Jewish and is far from God. God uses them to create one of the most, if not the most, beloved Christmas carol that has eternal truth in it. And then a professor and chemist who loved God so much that he dared to do something that had never, ever been done before. Kind of like giving a message to shepherds. See, Capot, I think, captures what the prophets are proclaiming. There will be a day. Someday there will be a day. I know that things stink now. Jeremiah says, I know it's awful. It's like bitterness and gall. But there will be a day, a thrill of hope, where the weary world will rejoice. Where in this distant place, it will break. This nightmare that we live in will be like this new and glorious morning. We can join in that. We can subvert the culture and live in that with Christ. We can do that. See, the crux of the story is what 
Christ is connected to. That's what Luke does. He's like, will you choose to worship God by going to the manger and bowing your knee to an infant king who will not fight the way the world fights, who will not proclaim more death, but will instead create a way for life? Or will you rebel against God and make your own definitions of good and evil? See, not only did Christ not just defeat Rome, the bigger and badder Babylon of the day, Christ went to the cross to defeat the supernatural evil behind Babylon, the one that was in the garden tempting the man and the woman to doubt God's goodness, to to be God, to eat from that tree of life or that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He went to conquer the great serpent, the one that Revelation calls Satan and destroys and one day will destroy all of it but renew it. But in that time, we live between these times. So death, Christ's birth and death and resurrection gives us this thrill of hope, this reality that everything has changed. So that's why I think Jeremiah can go from this place of uh, there's bitterness and gall. But yet, I call this to mind, therefore I have hope. Because of Christ's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah was like called this depressed prophet who at times wallowed, but at other times realizes, I just got to preach to myself. I got to call this to mind. I got to bring this forward. I am not consumed. Christ, God's compassion is new. It's never failing. God has never left me. He's never not done one of his promises. I can have hope. I can't save myself, but every day there's a chance for a new beginning. That's what we can do every day. We have that chance every morning. Do you need to call it to mind? Because sometimes I do. Sometimes I just don't wake up and be like, oh, good morning, Lord. I'm like, good Lord, it's morning again. Gosh, I have a sing-song child, like, yay. And I have, like, other ones like me, like, But I got to call it to mind. I got to preach to myself. I got to say, God, your mercies are new. A new day is possible because of what you've done. And it's not just like rah, rah, cheer. It's actually the story that a new day gives us the hope to keep going. So many of us, we live in this hope-deprived life where it's just getting sucked out of us. And then we can try and fill it by ourselves by chasing after all these other things all these other hopes that we think will fill us up, like money or our job or our relationship or the next great thing, except they always disappoint. That's why God called a handful of us to start this church because so many people put their hope in all this other stuff and the only hope that will last is Christ and we just gotta make it easy to find Jesus. We just gotta call it to mind, remind ourselves The Lord is good to those who hope in him. Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who hope in him. So where do you need to go? What do you need to hear? What do you need to let go of that you think is giving you hope that's really not? That you think will save you, but it won't. Because what we see in this story is there's a guy who knows the story of the Savior, but doesn't know the Savior. Maybe you're here because you know you need salvation, but you just don't know what it's going to cost, or you do, and you're unwilling. 
the thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. A weary world, not just a weary person, the whole world. Christ is going to change the whole world. Christ has changed the whole world. And we wait for the future day. But until then, we live with that expectation and we can call it to mind and call it to hope. So what does this look like? As the band comes up, I think it looks like like this song, actually. In the story, um, the legend has it that in 1871, um, the French and the Germans are fighting this bloody battle in the, let me make sure I get it right, the Franco-Prussian War. And it's Christmas Eve. Bullets are flying across. There's no weary world rejoicing. There's just a weary world. And one French guy gets out of his muddy trench in front of everyone. There's no gun in his hand. There's no gun at his side. And he stands before everyone. And everyone stops shooting just because they're shocked at what this guy is doing. They have no idea. And he starts singing in French the words to O Holy Night. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Warring sides. Listen to all three verses. And a German soldier gets out of his hole and starts singing in German Martin Luther's song, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. And for a 24-hour period of time, people who were at war had peace. Now, it's a legend, but Christ has done far smaller things. We live with the hope Will you call it to mind this week? Will you share it with somebody else? Because there are days when I need it, friends. God, would you speak to us about what we need? Holy Spirit, you know where we're putting our hope. You know if it's in you, Jesus, or if it's in other stuff. God, you know if we are letting go of our hope that we have in you. We know you, but we're just letting go. And we're falling to despair, to depression, to darkness. God, we're not calling our hope up. God, we're not professing what we know to be true, that every morning your compassions are new. Every morning they're available. God, you love us. You continue to reach out and love us. You continue to reach out and love people that we don't love, the ones that we would put in our society as the lowest. God, you call out to shepherds. God, I pray that you would not only call the right hope and center us in your hope, God, I pray that you would you would strengthen us and embolden us, God, to subvert the culture, to continue to engage people and life to rise up in places of power, places of power that, that are void of you, to bring goodness and life. 
to live by your definitions of good and evil. God, so would, could we hear your word in this song? And God, could we feel your spirit throughout our week? Speak.